Good morning, church. Um, Our scripture reading this morning is from Philippians 3. Um, If you need a Bible, you don't have a Bible with you. Um, Our greeters would be happy to bring one over um, to you. Um, And if you don't already own a Bible, that is for you to keep. It's free. Um, So you can take that with you and read, um, have the the ability to read the scriptures at home. Um, But uh, before um, I begin, I just want to say, just, just take a look out here, um, and I know um, our church has, has gone through a lot, and it's, it's not just our church, but just our lives individually over the last um, several years, and I just want to say, based on Philippians, I should have been there already, um, that, yeah, you, you, I look out here, and I, you complete my joy. Um, I see encouragement in Christ. I see comfort. I see love. I see participation in the Spirit. I see affection and sympathy. So um, before we read the word, um, the scripture is from Philippians 3 on page 922, if if you're using one of the church Bibles. I just wanted to to get that out of there. Um, So let's uh, hear what Holy Scripture says. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is precious, and your son, Jesus Christ, is precious. Holy Spirit, help us to understand this passage in ways only you can help us understand. If you do not open our eyes and our hearts to Jesus, we will never know or see him as he ought to be known. So help me to communicate clearly the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus and help us all as hearers, both believers and unbelievers, as sufferers, sinners and saints, to know Jesus as he ought to be known, to obtain fresh, new and restored joy in Jesus our Lord and be able to confess like Job of old, my ears have heard but now my eyes see God. Oh, would you do that for us this morning so that your son would be glorified, not just in the preaching and hearing of your word, but that Jesus would be glorified in our hearts and that each soul here this morning would leave today transformed, sanctified, encouraged, comforted, uplifted, and blessed for the glory of his name. Amen. Um, I don't know what your week's been like, um, but um, just to get it out of the way as well, um, I know some of you might have had a tired week just as Paul was uh, communicating this week and I do want you, if, if you're tired, I just want to say it's okay. Um, if you need to close your eyes a little bit, that's fine. And we want this place to be, um, church should be a place where we um, find rest in Jesus. And, and if a little bit of physical rest is going to help you to do that, then I just want to say that's, that's okay. Because it, it is going to be a, I've got 15 pages to go through, so if we're running two to three pages, up, or two, th- two to three minutes a page, that's, that's, that's around about 45 minutes. So just... If you're tired, that's okay. 
Um, I might get in trouble for saying that, but you know, I, I'm, I'm sure other churches wouldn't want you to be sleeping in church, but um, I, I acknowledge that you know, some of us have had maybe a, a hard week. Um, but do hear this. Um, if there would be one thing that you would or should take away uh, from the message this morning would be this. Uh, Jesus is all worthy. If that is all you remember or get from this message this morning, then I think I would have done the text justice. We can joyfully strive together for the gospel when we keep the glory, magnificence, beauty, and worth of Christ, who he is and what he has done at the center of it all. So my goal this morning is to drive that point that Jesus is all worthy, that there is a surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus in all his beauty and splendor against which nothing or no one else compares. And therefore, he deserves all worship and praise. And the way I would like to structure um, our time together is for us to think ourselves as skilled carpenters, not just mediocre IKEA assemblers. It's okay to dream, right? Um, And what we will be doing is we're going to craft and build a beautiful, structurally sound, three-legged stool, which has four components, the seat and, of course, the three supporting legs. So for the seat portion of time, um, we will consider the command to rejoice in Jesus. And then for the three legs, we will consider three reasons why Jesus is all worthy. His renown, his righteousness, his resurrection, and then we will conclude with our response and resolve. And the bulk of our time will be spent in the first two points, rejoice in Jesus and his renown. Um, so if, if you feel like, oh man, this guy is spending a lot of time on the first verse, um, just, just hang in there. Um, it, it will get done. Um, you don't have to sit there for too long. But, uh, so let's take a look at um, verse 1. Rejoice in the Lord and the first point. As we seek to begin crafting this seat. Um, so Paul continues in his letter. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And the finally here is not the finally as we tend to, to use finally. Like, for example, in 2024, Will the Leafs finally win a Stanley Cup? Who knows, right? Um, or if you are interested in someone, you're like, well, when is he going to finally ask me out? Is, is that ever going to finally happen? No. Um, the finally here, it's, it's, it's more like um, as far as the rest is concerned. Um, furthermore, my brothers. So it says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And this is the first time Paul is commanding the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. We have seen Paul talk about joy in the context of prayer, gospel proclamation, growing in faith, humble unity, servant-hearted, and sacrificial partnership. But here he hones in on Jesus. For Paul, Jesus is not the only source of his joy, but also the object of his joy. Paul is able to rejoice in the person and work of Jesus Christ, all that Jesus is and all that he has accomplished. For Paul, Jesus deserves all adoration, all praise, all happy emotions, all celebration, all worship, all boasts. Jesus is the only one person worth delighting and taking pleasure in. John Piper defines Christian joy as follows. He says, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in his word and in the world. I like this definition that joy is a good feeling. I'm not sure why he said it wasn't a happy feeling, um, but I think what often happens is we often limit joy to just feeling happy. And when happiness or gladness is not present, then we conclude that we are lacking joy, and we miss that we may actually have deep-seated joy that can also be expressed with tears or as faith and hope and peace. Romans 15, 13, a benediction we often give here to conclude our service, connects faith, joy, hope, and peace. And it reads, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and believing, and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Um, If you do a Google search for Christian joy defined, this will pop up. Um, And the definition is this, and I like it. Um, Christian joy is not merely in an emotion. Rather, it is a gift from God, sourced in his character and empowered by his promises. The fullness of joy is found in God's presence, and belief in God is the only thing on earth that can fill our hearts 
with his inexpressible and glorious joy. All right, Ecclesiastes 2.26 says, For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Just to reinforce that joy is a gift from God. Um, the Zondervan Pictorial Encyclopedia of the Bible, um, if you look up the word joy, says it's gladness, it's mirth, rejoicing, exaltation, exuberant joy, delight. And it goes on to say the more common Hebrew word for joy um, has its roots meaning to shine or to be bright. And I found this interesting in light of the fact that Paul identifies the believers as those who are to shine as lights in the world in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So joy in Jesus is one of the marks that distinguishes us from the world. Uh, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and there's going to be a Bible study through First Peter, and this is the verse from First Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Note Paul is commanding them to rejoice in Jesus, and he does so in the context of his concern and care for them. So Paul continues to, Paul continues, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. It is clear that Paul loves and cares for the Philippians. He expresses this in what he has written earlier in his letter, and he, express, he is expressing his love and care for them again. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul is interested in their well-being. He says, it's no trouble for me. I am not worried or burdened by this or lazy about this. I want to remind you of these things again and again because I care for you, and I want you to be safe. I want to protect you from harm. Harm. Paul is not naive that they might be struggling with joy. Overall, they are enduring hardships externally and internally. Paul is in prison. Epaphroditus was deathly sick. There's conflict in the church. There's a threat of opponents and false teaching. And hardships can be disorienting for the believer. Hardships can often distract us. It can lead to doubt, distrust, and even disobedience. Paul is well aware of this, and so throughout his letter, he's been seeking to reorient their gaze to Jesus, evidencing the presence of Jesus and his grace in their lives. And so he does so again, exhorting them to rejoice in Jesus. And if you're here this morning and joy is something you are struggling with, I just want to say keep your eyes on Jesus. Fight for joy in him. He is the only one who remains the same. He is constant and doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. With the same love that he has saved you, it is with the same love that he longs to restore your joy, especially your joy in him. So continue to strive for joy in him, even when everything else around you seems in disarray. He is for you. He is not against you. He loves you. He will never leave you or forsake you. And you shouldn't have to suffer alone, so have the courage to invite others into your struggle. Um, I don't journal as often as I, as I did, um, but when I, when I do, I usually date my entry. Um, but uh, as I was preparing this sermon, I, I happened to come across uh, an entry, uh, a poem that I, I wrote um, in the midst of COVID. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd just like to share that with you. It was during a season of deep depression and hurt. Um, <clears throat> I am made for your glory was saved to bear witness that Christ is worthy. In times past, I think I was able to do that somewhat faithfully. But in recent months, my faith seems to be found wanting. I've known what it's like to worship you with my lips while my heart is far from you. I've known what it's like to put on a face, a smile, all the while I am one afflicted with many trials. Apathy, anger, anxiety, send me to my grave. Lord, rescue me from this state where I give darkness too much weight, there is light, not just glimpses, but a rays of grace. If only you would help turn my gaze to be transfixed upon Jesus' face. You are God, you are good. Please reorient my wavering faith. Proverbs 14, 13, even in laughter, the heart may ache and the end of joy may be grief. For the one suffering, it is not always easy to invite others in. So at church, are you aware of each other's hardships? 
And do you have the courage to move towards those who might be struggling? Are you safe? Do you care? I mean, care with grace. If you're walking with someone who is struggling to rejoice in Jesus, I want to commend you. Praise God for being present in that person's life. But I also want to plead with you to be patient. Allow the Holy Spirit to do his working. After all, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. So what does that joy look like in seed form? Can you encourage your brother and sister and evidence grace in seed form? Can you see them striving for joy in Jesus rather than be frustrated or impatient or worse, judgmental and condemning? Are you able to identify small ways they may be clinging to Jesus? Who are your heroes in the faith? Absolutely those who are the Pauls, the Timothys, the Epaphroditus of the faith, but also those who in simple and oftentimes hard ways who out of the little they can give cling to Jesus. I know, brother, sister, that this situation may be impacting your joy in the Lord, but I'm so encouraged to see you clinging to Jesus. That's pretty heroic. Celebrate small steps towards joy in Jesus. The process to take our eyes off our circumstance and reorient our gaze to Jesus takes time, and sometimes even a long time, depending on the severity of the circumstance and or shape of the heart and mind. Heart change takes time. The process to turn mourning into joy is eschatological. If the Lord is patient with this process to give us fullness of joy, then we should be patient too. Let's, just, let's not dismiss someone's progress in joy just because we are too impatient. Wait for it. Stick it out. Be an instrument in a Redeemer's hand, an agent of grace to help one another in time of need. Thanks be to God that joy in Jesus is something we can experience both now in the glory to come. And Paul reminds the Philippian believers that they can rejoice in the Lord despite the hardships they have been enduring. Are you seeing a little bit of Jesus' worthiness yet? He is the one we can ultimately rejoice in always, who is patient with us to restore our joy in him when joy is hard. Well, now that we've finished crafting the seat, and let's work on carving out um, the first leg to the seat. Um, and because it's the first leg, it's going to take a little bit longer. We're going to figure out how to design this and, and craft it. But let's, let's take a look at the next uh, portion of our text, verses 2 to 8. His renown and not ours. So in verse 3, Paul identifies the people of God as those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. This is also a mark of a true believer in Christ Jesus. We are those who glory in Christ Jesus, who are concerned for Jesus' renown and put no confidence in the flesh. We are the true circumcision, men and women circumcised in the heart, unlike some who Paul calls dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh, who are commonly called Judaizers, who champion the law of Moses and insist on circumcision as the badge of salvation. In fact, Paul, in his concern for them, exhorts the Philippian believers to look out for them, to watch out, beware, he says, three times of those who ultimately put confidence in their flesh and not in Christ Jesus. Gordon Fee writes, this is where the Judaizers have gone astray. They reject boasting in the Lord for confidence in the flesh. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. The term dog was usually an insult reserved for Gentiles. And here Paul flips the term and applies it to the Judaizers. And it wasn't a flattering term either. Even today, nobody wants to be called a dog unless you are Snoop Dogg or gangster. <laughs> so dogs were considered scavengers, picking over the dead and therefore unclean. In the Old Testament, it was often a figure of reproach. Look out for the dogs to do evil and boast in their flesh, glorying in themselves. True believers are not dogs. Can we sometimes or oftentimes fall into sin? Absolutely. Guilty. But we are not characterized by our sin. Because in repentance from sin, our sins are forgiven in Christ Jesus. And if Christ is able to forgive us our sins, then we should be able to forgive one another. And I know that is easier said than done. But sinner is no longer our identity. By his grace, we become worshippers. Of Christ Jesus. Paul calls these false teachers evil doers or workers of evil, those who practice evil, 
Their life is one characterized by evil and not by Christ-likeness. These are the ones who will stand before Jesus one day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Or in other translations, you who practice lawlessness, you evil doers. These false teachers' lives are characterized by practicing lawlessness and doing evil rather than doing the will of the Father. I mention this because in our church, our size, there may be dogs among us, who knows, but we want to be careful not to misclassify struggling saints who suffer in sin, and that's all of us as dogs. Is the sin part of their character? Paul gives us some indicator as to what dogs are. Their lives are characterized by evil, which means they are unrepentant. They do not turn away from their sin and turn to Jesus and are not concerned for the glory of Christ. Struggling, suffering saints who sin are not dogs, so let's not treat one another another like dogs. If you're looking for signs of repentance, wait for it. Sometimes repentance takes time. Turning away from sin and turning to Jesus is a heart change, and heart change can take time depending on the nature and circumstances surrounding the sin. So if you see sin in someone, don't immediately dismiss them as a dog, someone unclean, a figure of reproach. And I know, again, that can be especially hard if that sin was against you or against someone you love and care about. And it's very possible that you have sinned against, against them in your response to their sin. Christian conflict, which thank God only happens on this side of the sun, can be complicated. Again, forgiving one another is easier said than done, but we are still commanded to do so. And just like repentance may take time, so can forgiveness. But can we agree in humble mind that if Jesus is our Lord in whom we rejoice, that we are indeed brothers and sisters in the Lord, members of the true circumcision whose hearts have been transformed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh by the Holy Spirit and therefore treat one another as such? Because by the help of the Holy Spirit, we can repent, we can forgive, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Because if you dismiss this, you may be missing something beautiful that the Lord is working in someone out of their sin, which he is doing in all of us, all the time as we are being made more like Christ. Paul says to beware of these false teachers. They are dogs adding to the gospel of Christ and insist that circumcision is necessary for belonging to the people of God and for salvation. They are evildoers who put their trust in the flesh and do not see the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ in their hearts and minds. Jesus is not enough. Paul, however, he sees the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ, which is why he can renounce any merit or achievement that would lift up his own name that may detract glory away from the one who was given the name that is above every name, Jesus, to whom every knee should bow in heaven, and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, is Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. So he puts this hypothetical statement just to entertain the Philippian church. He says in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for the confidence, for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul is humoring the Philippian believers and perhaps those as well who may have been tempted or fallen victim to the Judaizers. He says, look, if anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, it would be me. If these guys think they have flex, I've got greater flex. And he goes on to list seven, a number that often represents completion. He lists seven flexes. If If Paul was a muscle man in a muscle man competition, I can picture his routine, posing, and I'm not going to do it, posing and flexing his various muscles and ending it with a mic drop. And where did that mic come from? Because he wasn't even holding one. Um, Actually, he would be more like the Incredible Hulk in a muscle man competition, finishing off his routine with a Hulk smash and knocking down all his opponents. So let's take a look at these flexes. So the first four flex relates to his heritage and birth, and the last three flex relates to his achievements. So first flex... The biceps. Circumcised the eighth day. 
Unlike these false teachers who may have been circumcised as adults, Paul was circumcised the eighth day according to the Old Testament Abrahamic covenant. Um, I didn't know this, but thank you, thank, you know, thanks to the work of um, Peter Gentry and Stephen Willem, the eighth day derives its significance from the account of creation uh, where God made the world in six days and rested on the seventh. Um, since the seventh day is indefinite, the eighth day is the beginning of the new creation which fits with the imagery connected with Abraham as the new Adam. So Paul is saying, look, guys, I'm an eighth dayer, a new creation. If you want to make circumcision a thing, right? And then he moves on to his next flex. So second flex, triceps. Of the people of Israel, he says, not only is he an eighth dayer, he's an eighth dayer of the people of Israel. He is a direct descendant of not only Abraham, but of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, in whom the people of Israel derived their name, given to Jacob by God, and therefore Paul belongs to the chosen people, the people of the covenant, privileged, elect. And most of these false teachers would not be able to claim the same, especially if they were Gentile converts. Moving on to the third flex, his calves of the tribe of Benjamin. It's debated why Paul would mention this, but this could be Paul harking back to Saul, the first king of Israel, who was a Benjamite of whom perhaps he was named before he became Paul. Maybe it's because Benjamin was the only son of Israel who was born in the land of promise, or because Benjamin was one of two favorite sons. Whatever the case may be, Paul's got a pretty impressive pedigree, and his calves are getting tired, so let's move on to the next flex. So fourth flex, he does a bit of a shimmy with his leg and wait for it. There it is, the quad flex, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Why not put a cherry on top to sum up his lineage? Paul was, in fact, a Hebrew of Hebrews, purest of the pure, the cream of the crop of Jewish lineage. Moving on to his fifth fleck, Paul turns around, puts his thumbs into his side, butterflies his shoulder. Okay, showing off his back muscles. He says, as to the law of Pharisee, Paul's life was one of scrupulous obedience to the law, both the Torah and associated Jewish traditions. Sixth flex, with his hands behind his head, he turns around and again, his abs. Okay, flexing his abs. Makes sense. Six-pack for the sixth flex. As to Zio, he says, a persecutor of the church. This was something Paul was probably no longer proud of, um, and probably it stirred up some feelings of grief and remorse. But to prove the point, um, he reminds them that his zeal was unmatched. In Acts 8, we read, Paul approved of Stephen's execution by stoning. And just before Paul was converted on his way to Damascus, to imprison followers of Christ, he was breathing out, which is the word for spirit, he was breathing out threats and murder. At Paul's trial before King Agrippa, as recorded in Acts 26, Paul, in Paul's defense as a now devoted follower of Christ, he admitted, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Pre-conversion, Paul vehemently hated Christians. And the only credit these Judaizers may be able to claim was that maybe they were able to deceive a few Christians to adopt their beliefs and practices. William Hendrickson comments, if persecuting zeal could ever have opened the gates of heaven, Paul would have walked right in. Here too, his advantage over the Judaizers was great. They merely proselyted. He had been a persecutor even unto death. Final flex, neck muscles. Wait, what? People have neck muscles? Yes, we do. If you really work at it, you can too. Uh, so with his last flex, Paul says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Fee goes on to write, Paul has no blemishes on his record. As far as the Torah observance is concerned, he has no blemishes. If keeping the law by human merit could be counted as righteousness, Paul would have been able to stand before God and be declared blameless. Could the Judaizers claim the same? These false teachers have no reason for confidence in the flesh. They would, have, they would fail in comparison to someone like Paul. So what hope would they even have to stand before God if Paul were to stand right beside them? But whatever gains Paul had as a result of his heritage and own accolades, whether it be status, respect, approval of man, or glory, he now counts as loss 
for the sake of Christ. Paul is even able to count the wrong and sinful things he has done, which he thought counted for something at one point as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. What things in your life keep you from knowing Christ truly, intimately? Do you desire your own renown? It could be an outright desire for fame and glory, or it could be just insisting on your own way. That is not according to God's way. Insisting on ways people should live, behave, act, or think that actually takes away from Christ's glory. Desire for renown is dangerously idolatrous because if you think about it, it mixes both pride and fear of man. David Pallison noted that pride is, I play God, and fear of man is, I install you as God. And I found that helpful categories to think in because if I take those categories and apply it to desire for renown, it sounds then that the heart of desire for renown is, I want God to praise me. And the Apostle Paul would have none of that because there is only one who is worthy of all glory. And Paul gives us us a litmus test to know if we desire our own renown. He says in in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The test is this. Are you willing to suffer loss? Suffer loss anything that gets in the way of truly knowing the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Are you willing to lose or to let go of status, position, privilege, power, praise, comforts, control, contentments, relationships, wealth, sex, envy, holding on to bitterness due to strained relationships or holding on to bitterness because of hurt or sickness or poverty or discontentments, etc.? How about the world's view on issues that are not in line with what God says in his word, like marriage, euthanasia, gender identity, and sexuality? And I know some of us here have friends. We have family, loved ones who identify as 2SLGBTQIA+. There are members among us who once identify or are struggling still. And I long for all of them, all, all of us, to know the true love of Christ. We all need that. But I know that this community has been the subject and an object of scorn and hate, even from the Christian community. And that is wrong and that is hurtful and not Christ like at all. We are all created in the image of God and have dignity and worth. And I know you want others to see that as well. And so you love and you support them um, and, you, and you want them to be treated um, as. as, as human beings, not less than human beings. But we are also all born in sin because our first parents sinned, and so that image is now skewed. But what I do want to say here to all of us is this. The ultimate human potential is not self-expression, but Christ-expression. It is not to be the best version of yourself, but to image Christ That is everyone's potential right from conception, right from creation, because we all have been created in the image of God, though it is now tainted by sin. Right from our birth, God put into motion that life was not supposed to be about us, but about Jesus, who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature in human form. Jesus is to be our greatest identity. This is where we get our value our dignity, our worth, because he is the one who is all worthy. How about differences in theology, ecclesiology, eschatology, and church carpetology? You know, the study of how, what what color the church carpet should be. Um, These non-primary issues that often divide, are you willing to lay those secondary, tertiary, non-gospel differences aside and seek to live in love? Or do you want to just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. I love the doctrines of grace, but what good is it if this theology doesn't produce grace in me towards others? It's not the doctrine of disgrace, right? But we make it that when we use it to tear people down, and this does not reflect well on Jesus. We are not saved by the doctrines of grace, but by his grace through faith. We are saved by a person, not by theology. The demons have good theology, probably better than any of us, and yet they shudder. How about Christian liberty? Is this something 
you're willing to give up? Is it possible that even the things that Christ has won for us can become hindrances to knowing him more? Absolutely, when we treasure the gifts more than the giver. I think the point of Christian liberty is that we now have the freedom to put the needs of others above our own when we die to self for the sake of another, for the glory of Christ. How about our choice of entertainment? We live in an entertainment-saturated world. Sure, we can enjoy God's gifts in the form of entertainment, but if we are honest, how many of us have fallen into sin after or during watching a movie that we thought we could handle? Covetousness, purity, envy, fear, despair, anger, idolatry, sinful desire, etc. If the King of Glory called you to renounce anything that was distorts you from seeing, knowing, and experiencing him as he ought to be known in accordance with the scriptures, could you give it up? Would you give it up? For Paul, Jesus is the ultimate model for counting all as loss. And we see this in verses 2, 6 to 11. Even though Jesus was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant And so for Paul, if Jesus was able to count his right to be God as lost to save sinners for the sake of God the Father's glory, then surely, as a follower of Christ, he can, on a human level, suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order to gain Jesus. Paul understood what it meant that it was granted, gifted, grace to him that he should not only believe in Jesus, but also to suffer and even suffer the loss of all things for his sake. This is the kind of heavenly citizenship that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it forsakes one's own rights and worth in order to spotlight Christ. So this is how we prove and show that Christ is all worthy when we are able to count all things as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. And we saw that last week in the lives of Timothy who sought not his own interests but Jesus' interests and his concern for the Philippian believers and Epaphroditus who was obedient to the points of near death, willing to hazard his life for the work of Christ. And as you hear these examples and stories, you might be thinking, is Christ really worth that kind of life? Is Christ really worth knowing? Is Christ really enough that I can give up all that I hold dear? Well, let me answer from the example of Job. If you are all at all familiar with the book of Job, the accusation against Job that the devil makes is, is this. He says in Job 1.9, does Job fear God for no reason? Um, That is, will will Job love God for no reason at all? Will Job love God for God? When everything is taken away from him, his children, his wealth, his health, his status, his friendships, will he still love God just because God is God? Well, at the end of his suffering, no thanks to his friends who added to his suffering by insisting he had sinned and was guilty, even though Job maintained his innocence. And we know that his sufferings was not due to sin because as readers, we are given details. We know it was granted to Job by God that he would suffer. But even through all that loss, by God's grace, Job was able to say, now my eyes see God. So through suffering the loss of all he had, he was able to see God in a fresh and new way that he had never seen before. Job even had to give up on the notion that God had abandoned him, even though that is what he felt, which made his suffering all the more unbearable. Because the truth was, and will ever be, God did not and does not abandon him or, or us. For, so by God's mercy, God corrected Job's thinking. Through a series of questions that spans four chapters to include the wisdom literature, God reorients Job's thoughts back to the truth of who God is. Job had to be reminded of the bigness and supreme worthiness of God. And one of my favorite series of questions that God asked Job is in Job 38, um, 4 to 7. And it says, and it reads, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. We often read these questions as harsh rebukes. Um, Eric Ortland would disagree. He sees God's response to be incredibly gentle and gracious. They are gentle and gracious reminders, encouraging Job on to come to a correct understanding of him. 
Um, if you want to read more on this, my wife and I highly recommend his book, um, Suffering Wisely and Well, The Grief of Job and the Grace of God. Right? So God is seeking to reorient Job's heart and mind. God is encouraging Job to think right truths about God. And like his friends who were saying unhelpful things about God, sometimes true, but never with grace. And when they speak truth, they do not do so in love, they, though maybe with good intentions. But God, full of grace and truth, seeks to reorient and restore Job, not just with good intentions, but with deliberate grace. Anyways, the reason why I like this passage is because Jesus was there. Jesus was there when the foundations were laid. Jesus determined the measurements and stretched the lines upon it. And yet, it was Jesus who ultimately suffered. The ultimate innocent sufferer who took upon the sin and guilt of others upon himself so that others, like you and I, might be saved from our sins. Though he had everything, he made himself nothing to save us. This is why Jesus is all worthy and worthy of us losing anything and everything for him. And if you are here today and you don't believe or are skeptical that there is a surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, or maybe you are thinking, what's the big deal about gaining Christ? My prayer is that God would help you see Jesus more clearly in all his beauty and splendor. So as we move on to the next point, may the truth of Jesus' renown and worthiness move you that much closer to Jesus, even if it's just to challenge one small misconception you had about him. It's at least one step closer to him. So we're moving on to the second leg, guys. Almost there. Um, his righteousness are not ours. Verse 9. Paul continues, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. Paul wants to be found in the one who, being found in human form, humbled himself by, be by becoming obedient to the point of death. Paul wants to be found in no one else or nothing else except Jesus. So why does Paul want to be found in Jesus? Because he knows that his righteousness counts for nothing. Any, any good that he may have done, not counting all the bad that he has done or all the good he failed to do or will fail to do, Paul has come to an understanding that his own righteousness will not make him right with God. That his righteousness are like filthy rags, like a polluted garment, a garment stained by menstruation. Even though he would consider himself blameless according to God's law, Paul knows now that no one is good, none righteous, no, not even one, and that his law-keeping righteousness is rubbish. Um, the remedy he needs is the righteousness of another, but not just any other. He needs the righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The only righteousness that counts for anything before God is the perfect sinless righteousness of Jesus Christ that comes from God and not man. For God is a holy God. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that this perfect righteousness can be yours, imputed to you simply by putting your faith, your trust, your confidence in Jesus and not in yourself. On that day, when you stand before God in judgment, will you be presented as pure and blameless, found in Christ Jesus because you claim the righteousness of Christ as your own through faith? Or will you dare stand before God on your own without him and inevitably bow the knee and confess Jesus Christ is Lord and then be cast away into outer darkness into the eternal lake of fire which was prepared for the devil and his demons? On that day, it will be too late. So I plead with you today, do not delay. Will you put your trust in Jesus today? This is why Jesus is all worthy. Jesus, the perfect son of God, knew no sin. He did not deserve death, but he subjected himself to death in order to take away our sins so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Without his righteousness, no one could stand. Are your sins covered by the blood of Jesus? If God would mark iniquity, who could stand? But with Jesus, there is forgiveness. God has provided a way for your sins to be forgiven through repentance and faith in Jesus. All you need to do is to obtain Christ's righteousness by simply trusting in him and not in yourself. We need the righteousness of Christ to stand before a holy God. And this leads us into our final point before we conclude with our response and resolve. The third leg of the stool, his resurrection and ours. Verses 10 and 11. Without 
Christ's righteousness, Paul would not know the power of Jesus' resurrection. He says in verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Elsewhere in scripture, in his letter to the Corinthian church, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and if, he, if, and if Jesus has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. Verse 17, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Verse 18, then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in fact Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all of the we are of all people most to be pitied. But in but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The worthy of the worthiness of Christ and his gospel and our faith hinges on whether or not Jesus was raised from the dead. And the point of his letter to the Corinthian church regarding the resurrection was this. Go and talk to the 12, to Peter, to James, to me. Talk to the 500 people who were there, who were still alive, who saw the resurrect Christ. He is alive. He is reigning on high. As believers in Christ Jesus, our hope is not in this life. This life is wasting away. It's not getting better. Just turn on the news. Our hope is in the life to come, when we will be raised from the dead and be given new bodies and be made completely new. No more sin, no more suffering, just glorified saints, even given a new name, a new identity, where we get to be in the presence of God our Savior for all eternity, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore in the new heavens and the new earth. Death, sin, and Satan will be no more. Are you afraid of dying? You don't need to be afraid of dying anymore. These were conquered when Jesus rose from the grave, and his resurrection justifies everyone who has put their faith in him, for he was raised for our justification. Now for Paul, he understood that this resurrection reality is not just something that awaited him at the last day. For Paul, the power of Christ was something he can experience now on this side of glory, primarily as he shares in Christ's suffering, becoming like him, in his death. Suffering for Paul was a means to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Did you know that as you suffer, Christian, you bear Christ's image with respect to his sufferings? When we suffer loss for the sake of Christ, we share, we fellowship with his sufferings, becoming like him in his death as we die to self and take up our cross and follow him. And this is also why believers can rejoice in Jesus um, even in the midst of suffering, because as we suffer or suffer loss for his sake, we are actually reflecting his image. So in suffering, we come to know Jesus in a unique um, way. Our suffering should remind us of the one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and humbled himself and was obedient to the point of death. He did not save us from his throne on high from afar, but he saw our sin, he saw our suffering, he had compassion on us, took on flesh, and entered into our suffering and suffered for us and was raised from the grave so that we may experience resurrection life in him even now. What a unique privilege and encouragement that our suffering is not wasted, but is able to produce in us Christ-likeness and we get to experience the power of his resurrection and live a new life, a resurrected life, whereby we humble ourselves and die to self for the sake of others and for his glory. For Paul, it was not only to live as Christ, but to die as Christ, and also to die as gain. So that concludes our last point, and now on to um, our response and our resolve. Um, our new uh, incoming pastor, Daryl Dash, shared this article with me, um, just in light of everything that happened and uh, he was saying, this, this is the kind of pastor I want to be. And so I just want to share this article with you that was written by uh, Ray Ortland. Um, you could read it on TGC. Um, it was written in September 2020, um, obviously in the midst of COVID. And it's uh, entitled Gospel, Safety, and Time. It's what everyone needs. A lot of gospel, a lot of safety, a lot of time. Gospel, 
good news for bad people through the finished work of Christ on the cross and the endless power of the Holy Spirit, multiple exposures, constant immersion, wave upon wave of grace and truth according to the Bible. Safety, a non-accusing environment, no embarrassing anyone, no cornering anyone, no shaming, but respect and sympathy and listening and understanding so that people can exhale and open up and burden their souls. A church environment where no one seeking the Lord has anything to fear. Time, no pressure, not even self-imposed pressure. No deadlines on growth. Urgency, but not hurry, because no one changes quickly. A lot of space for complicated people to rethink their lives at a deeper level. God is patient. This is what our churches must be, gentle environments of gospel plus safety plus time. It's where we're finally free to grow, and I would add, to be more like Christ. Can you imagine what our churches would look like if we made this our resolve? What our mission, what our city, our province, our nation would look like if we actually lived out Christ's grace and truth. If you're here today and you've been put off by Christians and so-called Christ-centered gospel-preaching churches, would this be the kind of church that would attract your attention? Would you say this church is what you see and know of Jesus in the scriptures? Can you imagine what your home life or marriage or friendships and relationships would look like if we made this our resolve? Husbands, wives, is your home safe? Is it a gospel, Christ-saturated place full of grace and truth? Is your marriage bed a safe space, a die-to-self place, or is it a selfish place? So fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, children, stranger, friend, rejoice in the Lord. Um, to repeat the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. May God help us to worship Jesus by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus because of his renown, his righteousness, and his resurrection. Let's pray. Jesus, your word says, Lord Jesus, you have said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Oh God, search us and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in us, any way that forfeits our soul because we were not willing to lose it for the sake of Christ. And lead us in the way everlasting for the glory of Jesus' name. May that be our prayer, O oh God.